sermon. But we will get by. There could be worse circumstances than this, that's for sure. We are continuing in our annual theme this year where we are looking at the doctrine of our church and learning how to live that out. And we looked at the doctrine of salvation last week, and that isn't the only sermon we're going to preach on salvation. In some way, every sermon that we preach is a sermon on salvation. But we're also going to look at this week, we're going to start looking at the doctrine of the end times. When you think of the end times, what comes to your mind? What, what scenes play in the movie screen in your mind when you think about end times? Do you have pictures of the apocalypse? Maybe scenes from the book of Revelation? Pop culture lately seems to be pretty obsessed with end times. And of course in pop culture that often includes zombies. I know one or two boys that are obsessed with zombies. We have threats of global warming in our lifetime. There's been lots of other threats that have been claimed will lead to the end of the world. Whatever it is, it's critical to your walk with Christ is your view of the end times. Our doctrinal position on the end times is this. We state, we believe in that blessed hope, the personal premillennial return of our Lord Jesus Christ. His return has a vital bearing on the personal life and service of the believer. So it's not incredibly detailed because we understand there's a breadth of understanding and of, of convictions of what exactly the return of Christ is going to look like and what those end times will entail. But that last sentence in that short little uh, statement is very important. His return has a vital bearing on the personal life and service of the believer. So let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and let's look at Paul's understanding of the end times. And we're going to see why it is returned, and why it is important and critical that the return of Christ, your view of the return of Christ, has such a bearing on your personal life and service as a believer. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 5. 2 Timothy 1, uh, 3, 1 through 5 reads, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, Reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying it. This is how the Apostle Paul captured the, his view of the end times. He starts out by saying, but understand this. He's saying, mark this, grasp it, take note and comprehend what I'm about ready to tell you. Don't tune out in the next few sentences. This is important. And when the writers of Scripture say, hey, take note of this, I want you to understand this. I think we have a duty to actually pause a moment and really understand what they're saying. In Scripture, when Paul says, understand this, or when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, that's kind of like using 
middle name of a child to get their attention. You know, uh, to say to Jackson, Jackson Thomas, that's a little different than just calling Jackson, right? It's really getting his attention. And we learned with our youngest ones, we've even given them two middle names, really amplified it. Abraham Edward Lawrence Lowry, get over here. And, he, and this is what God is doing right now. He says, understand this. Don't miss out on this. This is critical. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. That word difficulty, um, that's kind of a light translation of the word. Uh, the old King James says perilous times. That word is used one other time in scripture in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 28. Let me read that verse and see if you can pick out where that word is in the verse. In Matthew 8 verse 28 it says, and when Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him there, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. What word do you think it was in there? Fierce. Fierce. Do we see a, a picture here of two possessed men? Think of like two guys that are messed up or coked out, and they're living in the tomb, and they're so violent, so oppressive, that no one can even pass by that way. That's the word that Paul uses, and we've translated difficult, but that's the word that Paul uses to describe the end time, the end days. He says these end days will be perilous, ferocious. They will be dangerous times. And notice also this. It says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be, and then he describes all this sinful behavior. That word for, F-O-R, that's important. What he's saying here, that word for, he's saying like, he's saying, listen, that by way of explanation, the end times will be perilous because there's going to be all this sinful behavior. It's not like God's looking at a timeline, and when he gets just to the appropriate cash mark, he says, okay, now I'm going to make all their lives difficult because we're getting to the end times now. That's not what it is. It's as time progresses and people yield to sinful behavior, it's the choices of humanity that bring on the perilous times because they're choosing to live in a way that's contrary to what God prescribed. And that's a good warning for us as well. It's a good life principle. That when we choose sin, we are inviting trouble. We are choosing a difficult path that leads to destruction. Jesus made this clear, didn't he? But we, we don't, we always frame sin differently. We, we frame sin as such a pleasurable thing. But it's what's bringing about the destruction of the world. That's, that's good for us to just adopt that mindset in our own lives. I think of one of, one of my favorite verses, Psalm 84, 11. It says that the Lord is a stronghold, and he's a shield and a stronghold. It says that no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightness. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so when we make a sin choice, we're going after something else 
that will not be good for us, and if we only did it God's way, there's nothing good that He's going to keep from us. Like was in the testimony that Stephanie shared this morning. He's already given us Jesus, the best thing that could possibly be given, so why would He all of a sudden get stingy on lesser blessings? He's not going to do it. And yet it's that, that deceit. Oh, but this sin will offer me something that God doesn't want me to have. We get this idea that God has closed off these boundaries of all this sinful stuff over there, I don't want you to have that good of a time. That's too fun over there. You stay over here where we're serious in holiness. But that's not it at all. Don't go to the sin because it's dangerous. But when we do, and when collectively humanity does, perilous times come. And look at what he describes. All these sinful activities. Uh, I count, I think it was 19 of them. And rather than kind of assaulting you with these 19 sin descriptors, let, let me first just, let's, let's break them into categories. I, I just wrote all of these out, and then I just kind of categorized them. And I see roughly four categories of sinful behavior that brings violent, oppressive, perilous times. First of all, misdirected love. This would be the, maybe the biggest and first category I see here. Misdirected love. We see it as the first two, lovers of self, lovers of money. The very first uh, quality in verse 3 is heartless. That, that another way you can say that is without love. And then at the end of verse 3 it says not loving good. And then in the middle of verse 4 it says lovers of pleasure. So those are five distinct qualities that all fall into the uh, category of misdirected love. Just think about those the big three there, lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. These are the top three values in society today. And they'll tell you that it's a good thing. Lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. This is Hollywood, right? And and don't, don't be so hard on Hollywood. They're funded by many people in the Midwest that go to church and idolized by them. We look up to them. They're lovers of money, lovers of self, lovers of pleasure. Oftentimes, that's what is thought of when you think of the American dream. Now, as believers, I think we can redeem the American dream and make it something higher and better than that. But so often, that's what is thought of as the American dream. Lovers of pleasure, lovers of self, lovers of money. Every commercial you watch... Just, I challenge you over this next week, every advertisement you see, just write it down. Which category does this fall into? And most likely it's going to be in one of those three categories. Lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money. It says at the beginning of verse 3, heartless. Heartless. Literally this means lacking natural affection. Missing familial love. And we have that in spades in our world today, don't we? A lack of natural love and affection where it should just be there. 56 million abortions between 1973 and 2013. One abortion every 30 seconds. That's lacking just natural maternal love. Over 400,000 children in foster care annually. That means that their whole situation was so bad that the government had to come in and remove them from their parents. A lack of natural...
natural affection. By the way, of that 400,000 children, 49% of them are less than five years old. How could you not love a five-year-old? Lack of natural affection. Um, voluntary childlessness is becoming more and more prolific in our society. And I understand there's some people that um, can't have children, and, and that's okay. And there's some people that, for good reason, they choose not to have children. But this upcoming generation has more voluntary childlessness, maybe than any other generation. And I think when they broke it down into motives, 89% of the reasons fell in these two categories. It infringed upon my personal freedom. It requires too much time and energy. So it's, it's a lack of natural affection. I remember, um, well, and listen, in this, in this, in this um, list here, by the way, it also says, um, in the middle of verse 2, disobedient to their parents. That would be a lack of natural affection as well. I remember being taught when I was a little kid in the Baptist church I grew up in that one of the offenses in the Old Testament that would require stoning was when a child was dishonoring his parents. And, and here God says it's just as important as all those other things. It's very important. It's a, because God knows society breaks down when there ceases to be love, honor, obedience, and reverence for the generation of people. So misdirected love in the form of love of self, love of money, love of pleasure, a lack of natural affection. And then that last one, it says, not loving good, at the end of verse 3. Really, this is even, again, this, this stronger language could be used here. And if I use a little bit stronger language, it's very acceptable in the Greek language here. I think you're going to see this absolutely describes the American culture that we find ourselves in now. Rather than just saying not loving good, what if we were to say hostile to virtue, despising what is good? Does that not describe where we're at today? This place that we're at today. It's not good enough to let you to approve of their sinful lifestyle. And they want you to disown what you can There's a second category, I think, in this, this litany of sins. Not only misdirected love, but a high view of self. A high view of self. Uh, we see it again in verse 2. It says, lovers of self, lovers of money. But then it says, proud and arrogant. And the, the third uh, characteristic in verse 4 is swollen with conceit. This is inflated views of self. Boastful, braggart, puffed up, a heightened sense of self-importance. Guard against this. Use only the right view. And listen to me. We see this again. You know, YouTube used to be a place where you go and kind of learn and watch documentaries and stuff. I watch some of the stuff, some of the garbage my kids watch on YouTube. It's these people doing ridiculous things and they act like they're very important. And they've got whole crowds of people out there watching them. This sick 
inflated sense of self-worth. It's going to bring hard times, and it's going to mark dangerous times, especially when it's combined with the third category, which is a low view of others. It's the it's it's double punch there, a high view of self and a low view of others. And that low view of others starts right after the word arrogant there in verse 2, where it says, You know what this word is in the Greek? It is blasphemoi. Blasphemoi. You know what that means then, right? Blasphemous. But not this is abusive, not blasphemous towards God. If you had an, a blasphemous personality and you treated everyone the way you treated God, the way you blasphemed God, you'd be an abusive person. That is someone who is demeaning, insulting, and denigrating to others. You say, so you have a low view of others. Denigrating, abusive. Let me ask you this. Is there any of that in some of your closest relationships? Is there any of that denigrating of a partner or a child or a parent? You gotta be on guard against that. That is destructive. It's vile. It's blasphemous. And somehow we allow the most destructive behavior in these relationships that we know, you know, we would never treat a coworker a certain way, but maybe we treat our spouse that way. Because we know they're not going to leave us. We need to be on guard against this kind of abusive behavior. Not only abusive under the category of a low view of others, but ungrateful, it says. Ungrateful. Blind to the consequences. Indifferent to others and what they contribute to your life. We teach our children to say thank you. That goes such a long way when an adult has the courtesy to say thank you to someone else. Gratitude is so important. And when we lose the gratitude, difficult times come. We're going we're gonna to touch base on that a little later here. But also, two other qualities here under the category of a low view of others. Unappeasable unappeasable, impossible to please. Um, the word literally means without libation. So what that the picture is when you would make a treaty with someone, you would drink to it, and that word means there's no drink. It means it's impossible to make a treaty with this person. There is no compromise. There's no middle of the road. It's all their way or no way whatsoever. Unappeasable. It's marks the end times. And then the last one is slanderous. Again, let me tell you the Greek word for slander. You'll recognize it. Diablos. A slander is doing the work of Satan. Satan is the accuser of the saints. And when you slander other people, you are going after your father the devil. You're following his example. You're doing exactly what Satan is doing when you slander others. So we have the... General category of misdirected love, a high view of self, a low view of others. And then the last one I think that, that I would put is undisciplined. Just general lack of discipline. And here we see that in several places. Uh, some of the words in this list would be without self-control, brutal, reckless, um, treacherous. These are all indications of a lack of discipline. Uh, brutal, really that means to be savage, untamed, feral. Uh, we had a possum that was wandering around our neighborhood a 
couple weeks ago in the daytime, and it was just a little baby, the cutest little baby possum. But something wasn't right. We had to crush it with a brick and throw it in the pile because what's it going to do? It's going to kill somebody. It's got, it's got rabies. It's wild. Possums don't normally wander around in the day and attack dogs and stuff like that. We had to get rid of it. The end times are marked by people who are like that. They're wild. They're feral. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 12 says that these, these unbelievers are like creatures of instinct, unreasoning animals. What it means is they're driven by their just natural animalistic desires. So if you want it, you get it. If you want sex, you go have sex. You want to watch that pornography, you're going to watch it. You want to eat till you're full every time, you're going to do it. No matter what, just the natural desires, you're going to answer all the time. You are obedient to your desires, just like they are. We have to be on guard against this. That's what the word brutal means. The word reckless means, you know, runs headlong, is rash, is impetuous. Um, it's just not careful at all, not thinking. And so all, all this undisciplined, this gluttony, drinking too much, satisfying your base desires, it's just it's general hedonism. And, and, and also, notice it says having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Means that it's not always going to be obvious. Means this list of sins is committed regularly by people who call themselves Christians. It means these characteristics will be found in local churches. It means these qualities could be found probably even in our local congregation. Am I the only one sweating a little bit here? We have to rally around Christ and rally around each other to weed out this kind of behavior because it will infiltrate and it will cause chaos. It says, avoid such people. And I think we could also take it to heart. Avoid being such people. Avoid being such people. None of us are above this. Probably all of us participate in one of these sins on a fairly regular basis. Oh, we need the Holy Spirit to come and change us. We need the Holy Spirit to oh, just have the scales drop from our eyes so we can see. Oh, man, look at that disgusting sin in my life. I was blind to it for this long. And so what I want to do, let's just kind of work it in reverse. Let's go through those categories in reverse real quick and just, what do we replace it with? What are we to do instead of this? Well, instead of discipline then, uh, instead of a lack of discipline, obviously we need to be disciplined people. That's biblical. I mean, here he's, he's saying a lack of discipline is a problem. We need to be disciplined. Um, you know, grace is not the absence of responsibility or duty. Grace does not mean you don't need discipline. We still need to be disciplined people. It just means we don't have to muster it up ourselves. Rather, we tap into the source of our discipline, which is God, the Holy Spirit. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of, some say a sound mind, that is self-control. So God has equipped us with His divine spirit implanted within our souls so that we can live disciplined lives. Do a word study on discipline in the New Testament. It's important. Grace doesn't mean everything comes easy now. 
You know, Jesus would get up early before the sun even rose. And guess what? He didn't have an alarm clock either. Do you think that just came easy to him? Or did he have to train himself and discipline himself? What about when he stayed up all night praying? Was that fun for him, you think? Or was he disciplined in his devotion? We need to be disciplined people. Um, and this is, you know, the, apt, uh, the opposite of reckless. Reckless was headlong, rash, impetuous. We need to be deliberate. Careful, intentional, thoughtful. This societal shutdown, COVID, has been helpful for a lot of people. Uh, Chris talked about that. It, it's, it's hard. It's, it's been serious. There's been a lot of suffering. Financial, physical, a lot of suffering. But for a lot of people, it's like, man, I, I've been forced to slow down and I realized I needed to slow down. Right? But now I'm finding myself difficult to ramp back up. It's time for me to kind of re-engage that discipline that I had before all this. I can't let all my spiritual discipline just sleep in. It's time to get back to it. I need to be disciplined. So, rather than being undisciplined, we need to be disciplined. Let's take the two categories together. A high view of self and a low view of others. We need to be humble and gracious. Rather than having a high view of ourselves, we need to be humble. And that doesn't mean a low view of yourself. That's a, that's a lie from Satan. It doesn't mean a low view of yourself. Humble, you have an accurate view of yourself. Paul knew that. He said, listen, he, Paul was able to say what he accomplished and say, but not me, it's the grace of God. And, and by the grace of God, I am that I am. I am what I am. I, you know, I, I can't, I'm not going to pretend I didn't accomplish what I accomplished. But he was still humble. He didn't exalt himself. He exalted God. Humble just means that. It means not exalting yourself. It means you can have a confidence, but you don't have to display it. You can have strength, but you don't have to demonstrate it. That's what humility is. It means you may know a certain amount of things, but you don't have to prove it to everybody else. So we need to be humble. And then rather than having a low view of everyone else, we need to have a gracious view of everyone else. We need to think the best of others. We need to assume their goodwill. So many times someone does something and we instantly assume their motives. And how often do we assume good motives versus bad motives? Someone didn't call me back. They're mad at me. How dare they not call me back? I just got a text yesterday that said, finally, you responded within 12 hours. <laughs> He's a friend of mine. <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> he was just joking. But it's easy to assume bad motives in texting, right? We're going to be gracious to people. We're going to assume good things. We're going to assume the best of things. Especially, look around here, especially among ourselves. We're going to assume the best of each other. We're just going to assume everyone is striving together in grace. We're not going to be judgmental. And also with this graciousness is gratitude. I said we're going to return to the thoughts of gratitude. This is one of the sins that brings on the end time is ungrateful. Let me tell you why gratitude is so important. Why it's so important to be thankful. Because you cannot be grateful and fearful at the same time. Can't do it. You cannot be grateful and angry at the same time. You cannot be grateful and bitter at the same time. And you can, the list goes on and on. And it's so hard to move away from something. If you know you're struggling with bitterness in your life, it's so hard to say, I'm just, 
I'm just not going to be bitter anymore. I'm going to walk away from that bitterness. Maybe impossible to do. If you're consumed with fear, what are you going to do? I'm just not going to be afraid anymore. Rather than trying to move away from those, rather positively move towards gratitude. And you will find yourself naturally moving away from the things that are incompatible with thanksgiving. Whether it's fear, or anger, or bitterness, or unforgiveness, or whatever it might be. Move towards gratitude. Now the last one. Like I said, I didn't have my watch. How long have I been preaching here? Anybody? Shrug shoulders. Alright. Everyone's awake, so that's good. <laughs> Alright. We're almost wrapping up. Here we go. So we had those four categories generally with being undisciplined, high view of self, low view of others, and then misdirected love. So let's think about that. And it actually says it. Um, where it says, um, at the end, in the middle of verse 4, it says they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So the cure-all here, the, the central nexus of all virtues is loving God. Just loving God. We are going to be lovers of of God. This is the one centralizing virtue that keeps us from all of this when we have a love for God. Now, let me just, I just want to share kind of what I've been processing lately. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to know, like, what your purpose is. If, you're, if you find yourself dissatisfied, discontent, you just feel like, man, something's missing in my life. You need to step back and think, well, what am I here for? What do I need to be doing? Um, and so, and of course, I gravitated to the, the church doctrinal statement. Glorify God by making disciples. But that, that's been my, I mean, that's been my drive for a while. And that's the right purpose statement for a church. But I'm just, I'm just confessing here publicly. I noticed that I was still, I was feeling kind of pressed down, and it's because I mistook my purpose to be like, I have to accomplish this. So if I, if I can't get a list of all the people that I'm discipling, and I'm not seeing the right amount of progress there, or if I haven't like really leaned into discipling someone else, now I feel like I'm letting God down somehow. And th th this, this passage is so helpful. Rather than lovers of pleasure... Lovers of God. First and foremost, we just need to love God. You know what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says? says, what is the chief purpose of man? You guys know it. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I realized, before I can go out and be discipling others, I just have to enjoy God. And really, what better way to disciple other people than be enjoying God, people are drawn to joy. People are drawn. If I'm finding enjoyment in something, people want to come and find out, hey, can I have a little bit of that too? And it's biblical to, to enjoy God. That's, that's the consummation of love, that you enjoy the one that you love. Let me read a couple of verses for you. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now this isn't, don't use this as a fine print end around to get what you want. Like, okay, I want a Harley Davidson, so I'm going to delight myself in the Lord so much, you'll have to give it to me. If you're really delighting yourself in the Lord, what's the desire of your heart? The Lord, in the things of the Lord. And he says, 
if you love me and you desire me and you and you and you treasure me, I'm going to give you all of me. I'm not going to hold any of it back. It's like what Jesus said: Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You want it? I'm going to give you all of it. Psalm 32, 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. That's a command. Here's a warning in Deuteronomy 28, 47. This is good. He's explaining why judgment came. He says, Because you did not serve the Lord your God. But that's not it. He says, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart. So they were serving the Lord, but not with joy, not with a glad heart. He says, because of that, for the abundance of all these things, therefore, you shall serve your enemies. I don't know. Maybe I'm not being clear, but I, I just realized that my purpose, first and foremost, is to enjoy God, to love God. And what brings Him more glory than people that adore Him? Than people that are only satisfied by Him? And then that's the watershed. Everything else just comes off of that. Now, one last thought, I promise this is it. Look ahead, verse, uh, chapter 4. In verse 6, Paul's wrapping up, really, his ministry to Timothy. And he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And you know, there's a couple of variations here. Some translations say, who long for his appearing. They just translate the word love to longing. Very similar. Equally applicable. But the big difference is if we say all those who loved his appearing is looking back towards when Christ came. Those that loved his coming are going to be rewarded. But if it's longings, those who are looking forward to his return are the ones that are going to be rewarded. And as I was reflecting and meditating on this, I thought, you know, they're two sides of the exact same coin, aren't they? There's no one that's looking forward to the return of Christ that doesn't look back and love the fact that he came. There's no one that looks back and loves Jesus that's not also looking forward and longing for his return. So this is what we mean in our doctrinal statement when we say his return has a vital bearing on the personal life and service of the believer. What you believe about this world, the place it's going to be in, and what brings Christ back affects how you live and love today. So we're going to end with a song together celebrating Jesus. Celebrating his return. Celebrating what he's done for us. This is my, it's a familiar hymn. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Can I invite you to stand and we'll sing together. Let me, let me just close the word of prayer and then we'll sing. Lord, we began this service praying that you would expand our capacity to adore you. And Lord, I know, I, I feel that stretching in my life, just preparing the sermon and preaching the sermon. I pray that those who have heard the sermon would feel that same answer to prayer. But now it's time, Lord, we're going to sing this song as a confirmation, but then we're going to go out and we're going to live this sermon. That we may adore you fully and rejoice in you and bring you glory through our adoration. We pray this in Jesus' name.